The Sunday Paper Review on Off The Ball. When he wants to do something, he does it. A hugely impressive person, apart from being obviously a brilliant golfer. My cousins uh, disliked their dog so intensely that they renamed it Scalacci. And the dog was called Scalacci from then on. It's a great piece of journalism. That sums up what he's like. The intro to this is just brilliant. He is an absolute control freak. Digesting the best stories on the back pages every Sunday afternoon on Off The Ball. The OTB Podcast Network. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Yeah, you're very welcome along. So we're going through the Sunday papers. I'll start you off with the various headlines. Lots of pictures from the game last night between Chelsea and Man City. Party poopers, says the Daily Mail. Uh, City's title celebrations on hold as Chelsea snatch controversial late winner in dress rehearsal for Champions League final. 2-1 win yesterday if you missed that game. There's a picture on the front page of The Observer of Sergio Aguero. Spot of bother, his penalty miss. Uh, contributing to the loss Aguero's uh, penalty gaffe puts Guardiola's title party on hold as Chelsea battle back for victory we have the Sunday Independent front page nice shot from the match last night in Limerick honours even this was Tipperary and Limerick tip show intent with stirring draw against the champions and then beneath that no surprises uh, Manchester United to review security in wake of fan invasion they're away from home today but obviously at home uh, twice this week coming Sunday World go with uh, the Sergio Aguero misses well City's silly surge if you missed it it was a Penenka and uh, Mendy went down and then just stood up and caught the Penenka you always look a bit stupid when that happens and then Ollie's on a lolly jolly so Solskjaer's uh, been promised cash for new signings and is set to sign a new contract says Kevin Palmer on the back page of the Sunday World uh, the Sun go with Aguero no as well. Nine years on, Sergio blows it. The nine years on part being his winner in May 2012 against QPR to win the title that day. Uh, the Star, down the Penenka. Aguero so sorry for his blunder. I mean, it's a bit over the top, isn't it, all this? Aguero so sorry for his blunder. He was tweeting big apologies last night. I mean, he was trying to score the bloody thing. It happens. And then Sunday Times, spot a bother as well. It's a picture of Mendy just uh, if you're watching or streaming there rather than listening on podcast, a picture of Mendy just standing up and uh, catching the ball one handed. And then beneath that box plans for warm up tests in disarray. So I know we talk about the challenge facing the lines all the time and trying to come together out of not very much. Well, the Springboks in a similar position, they still haven't played a match together since the World Cup final of uh, 2019 and they're trying desperately to arrange a match or two to warm up in advance of the Lions' arrival. Very happy to say we have Dr Katie Liston with us, Senior Lecturer at Ulster University and we have Dave McIntyre as well, Commentator with Virgin Media. Uh, thanks so much for the time, folks. Appreciate it. Morning, Joe. Morning, Joe. Uh, there's a lot to get through, a lot of good pieces in the papers today. Uh, Dave, I know you picked out the... Irish indignation over Warren Gatland <laughs> once again. So how angry are we here in the Sunday papers or is there a fair understanding of what Gatland, Gatland was doing? I don't, I don't see an awful lot of understanding in what Gatland was doing. We, um, we are quite angry. We're up at arms. Um, it's, it, you know, the lines is all about the moulding of the four nations into one and one single great cause and trying to win a test series in the Southern Hemisphere. But you can't escape the tribalism of it either. And ultimately, when it comes down to it, we just want Irish guys in the test team and we want them to play well. And if the Lions win, great. In some cases, I would almost suspect that we'd be happier to see the Irish guys play well in a losing cause than 
the Lions win a test series and the Irish guys not feature. And so you can't really escape that. And I think that has come out in the reading and the writing during the week. It's incredible that we probably have the most experienced head coach in the history of professional rugby in charge of this touring squad. It's it's Warren Gatlin's fourth Lions tour. And yet some of the writing would have you believe that he doesn't know his own mind, that he's uh, gullible and he's easily coerced into making a decision on a player that he genuinely doesn't believe deserves to be part of a touring party. I saw Neil Francis writing about almost the coup that was staged by Gregor Townsend during the week. Eamon Sweeney in today's Sunday Independent describes it as an insult to Irish rugby that we have a mere eight representatives in this squad and the persuasive powers of Gregor Townsend that he has managed to shoehorn the likes of uh, Finn Russell and Chris Harris into this line squad. But I mean, I don't buy that. I don't agree with some of the calls. And that's the beauty of this four-year process. Every time the Lions squad is announced, everybody gets angry about something. Everybody can point to several players who made it that they don't believe should have made it, and vice versa, guys have been left out that you feel have been unfairly treated. But that's just the way of sport. I mean, it's four nations that have about maybe 20, 25 guys who will have played throughout the Six Nations. He's only going to pick a, a small portion of that, and everybody's going to have their own opinions on it. But to say that we should be insult, feel insulted by it, that uh, Gregor Townsend has somehow managed to twist the arm of the most experienced coach in world rugby at the moment, that uh, our lack of an Irish influence in the selection process has really cost us. There may be something in that. I don't know. But I think it's doing Ryan Gatland a disservice. It all goes down to the microcosm of what happened at O'Driscoll and Davies in 2013. He was trying to build a 15 to win a test match, Warren Gatland. He made the decision that he thought best. There was a lot of hand-wringing and gnashing of teeth in Ireland at the time. But ultimately, Jonathan Davies went down and played brilliantly that day and they won the test match. I mean, what more do you want? Watch him down to you, Katie. That Peter O'Reilly piece is an interesting one, Joe. Um, and just to, to, to go off on a, on a little angle for a minute, what I actually picked up on, it was quite laudable from Sexton. If, if O'Reilly's right, he's quoting that uh, one of the reasons, obviously, there was concerns about Sexton's durability and so on. But Sexton played on for a few minutes in the, the last game, obviously, where he was diagnosed as having some balance issues and yet another concussion protocol. And I think he's to be lauded for that because any player in that position in the time coming up to Lions selection will be more than aware of the difficulties that there are with the return to play concussion protocols and the likely impact that was going to have with him being declared fully fit. Now, Peter O'Reilly says that he informed the Lions medical team that he would be fit if required and that was despite taking a, a six-week break from contact after suffering that concussion against Exeter, which was in the, the Heineken Champions Cup quarterfinal. And that admission by Sexton is important because I think it's in this piece or one other that I've looked at today where he's described as being emotional and sometimes being, I suppose, less good, I think was the phrase, at hiding his frustration maybe when he's substituted and so on. And that level of, of focus on welfare is going to be important for him. I think it's disappointing from a neutral perspective, Joe, that when you see the age profile of somebody like Sexton and arguably one or two others that might have been considered, because it does point to the extent to which the condensing of the rugby schedule now means that some of these older players are likely that their durability might be questioned going into the future, especially as well. Mm. Yeah, Peter O'Reilly's piece, A Tour Too Far. Johnny Sexton would be ill-suited to dirt track a role in Gatlin's lines. So it's in two parts, really. It's about the health aspect, which you talk about, Katie, at the end. And then initially he makes the point that 
you know, Johnny Sexton, 35 years of age. He says if Six Nations form was the chief criterion, Sexton would travel as the first choice fly half. And, you know, he was the best number 10 across the Six Nations. But O'Reilly writes, however, if we look beyond politics and injuries, it is possible that one of the biggest factors mitigating against Sexton was simply the pandemic and how it will affect the player's day to day existence on tour. And he says one of the key ingredients to every successful tour is a harmonious group of players and management. That becomes even more important when you have 60 or 70 people living cheek by jail for eight weeks, effectively incarcerated in just two hotels. I even made the point that the Lions commercial arm hasn't sold the uh, documentary yet. There isn't much appetite to watch another casino night in the team room. So he says this will be a stressful environment. Uh, Gatlin surely paid extra attention to the question that must be considered for every potential line. How would he handle the disappointment of not making the test team? And he talks, Peter O'Reilly, about Sexton as the alpha alpha male. He, he's used to being in a position of authority and control. Try to picture him in the role of dirt tracker. He says it's unfair to suggest he would be anything but professional. That said, he's not good at hiding his uh, frustration. So maybe Gatlin considered this a potential threat to morale. We can only speculate. Interesting point, though, Dave. Yeah, it's not one that I considered during the week. And obviously the reason Warren Gatlin gave was down to durability. And I didn't really see much opposition to that point that Gatlin was making because you can't escape the fact that Jonathan Sexton has had injuries with concussions and there's been two or three already this season. Um, Katie's point is a really good one. It does speak to the development and the progress that we've made at the mindset of these rugby players where in the past it was the last thing you do to put up your hand and say you were hurt. Well, maybe Sexton has set a really good example for younger players coming through that if you feel any in any way vulnerable when it comes to a head injury, put your hand up and get yourself off that field because life is too short. It is just not worth it. The difficulties you might experience later in your life if you try and you know play the hard man and keep going in these sorts of situations. So that's definitely a positive thing. But yeah, Peter O'Reilly's theory is an interesting one. I, I'm not sure Jonathan Sexton would agree with it. You know, he's a real competitor and he started his career scrapping for the Ireland 10 job with Ronan O'Gara. He was trying to oust Felipe Contopomi at Leinster. He didn't make first 15 for the opening test against New Zealand in 2017. So he knows what it's like not to hear your name in that starting 15 when the lineup for the first test is named. He's already got experience of that. And he would, I think, be the sort of guy that would be able to put the disappointment behind him and knuckle down and try and get that test 15 as best prepared as he possibly could. I'm not completely dismissing Peter's theory because it's an interesting one and he's not a guy Johnny Sexton that has spent much of his time on the sidelines barring injury and having to watch somebody else play in his place and his point is a good one about him being the form selection at 10 this is not a squad that was built on form Mm. these are extenuating circumstances there are guys in this touring party like Bondiaki for example he is in by no means in that squad on form he couldn't get into the Ireland team and his major contribution to the Six Nations was a red card against England we know why Bondiaki is gone Bondiaki red card against England sorry yeah but he was very good in that game Gatlin sided him from that game didn't he no I understand yeah I understand that but if you're basing it on form Mm. given that he only really got it back into that Ireland team on the on the basis of injury Mm. Bundyaki wouldn't be going. Like there are a couple of guys who are quite obviously in better form than he has been. But Bundyaki has certain qualities, yeah. and you need certain types of qualities when you're touring South Africa. That's why I think Johnny Hill has gone ahead of James James Ryan, for example. Johnny Hill is bigger, bulkier. He provides a bit more ballast in the scrum. I know we're getting a little bit technical here, but James Ryan has maybe lost out on that count as well. Mm. So John, Warren Gatlin knows what he needs to win this series. Um, Henry Slade, another guy that is 
got the noose and the nuance behind a pack that a lot of the guys you're going his place don't have. And yet he is missed out. Why is that? Because Warren Gatland mm. sees this tour going a certain way and that's what's going to be required to win a test series down there. On our um, claim parochialism here, I would say looking at the papers, I know you mentioned Damon Sweeney's piece is saying age is an insult to Irish rugby. I think there's a pretty clear-eyed view though across the board. Like Brendan Fanning does an assessment of Leinster's loss to La Rochelle and says we need to change direction. The Irish system might be good at developing new talent but it's not as good as we like to think it is. Neil Francis opens his piece by saying no matter what squad Warren Gatlin picked on Thursday he was going to be wrong even if he picked the best 37 players available uh, he was going to be wrong it is the simple universal truth though about Waza it's his team and he couldn't give a shite what anyone thinks which I think summed it up but you know he's making the point uh, the reason James Ryan's not going to South Africa is because his form is not good enough and the Lions management had to make a call as to why he was off the pace now Neil Francis talks a lot about concussion in this piece and he finishes up by saying Ryan and Sexton should not play again this season Kellen Doris should be stood down there's no point playing in hard ground with no real reason to play. Ireland too should recognise this and exclude all of them from summer tests. Maybe Waza has inadvertently done Ireland a favour for the first time in 20 years. So that was the tone of his piece. There was definitely an understanding there as to why he hadn't picked Ryan or Ringrose and Sexton. And just on uh, Sexton to finish up and I'll bring you in, Katie, on any other uh, thoughts. We, there's such a vacuum when it comes to injuries, not least concussion, and I understand it's a ses- sensitive subject for the players. So uh, Peter Riley has some information here on uh, Sexton. It talks about the whiplash effect from that tackle against Exeter. The whiplash effect of the Ewers tackle had given Sexton his second concussion in three months. It, that's been reported in a lot of places as three in three months. So it's interesting. Peter Riley here, who I'm sure has his sources, Sexton his second concussion in three months, but the results of scans and tests were encouraging. There was even the possibility that Sexton might have played against La Rochelle, but playing too soon after that second concussion would make him more susceptible to a third. Professor Belly, that's a professor over in England who Johnny Sexton flew over to see, recommended a six-week break and then things would be good to go again. I mean, I don't know on the... Um, Gatlin doesn't know his own mind. I do think uh, Katie Human Nature comes into it. I do think Gregor Townsend is going to bat for his number 10 and he's making sure he's on the plane. He has to deal with his number 10 on the far side of this Lions tour and I think he would have pushed very hard for Finn Russell. I don't know. I like. I just to trust Finn Russell out there in a Lions test I think will keep Gatland up nights if it comes to it. But it's, it's not even human nature, Joe, because I think that's, you know, arguably you could say it's come down to these kind of personalised decisions. It, it's a fact that Gregor Townsend is going to know Finn Russell better than he'll know Johnny Sexton mm. because he's working with him on, on a, a more regular basis, even if the time for the inter, you know that you get with the international teams has even been squeezed in that. I think the, the bigger question I have is, is the approach that's taken about the Lions selection going forward. And I haven't been able to do enough reading this morning to figure out why it is that there isn't a firm agreement in place that there is a representative of each of the four nations involved in the selection panel, because it leaves open a question and a criticism that had there been a representative of an Irish or an Irish representative involved in that, well, then that would have been put on the table at least. And somebody would be able to discuss what it is that they have seen in training from X player in the last three to four weeks either through the provincial level or right through to the international team that could therefore be considered by a group who will undoubtedly have had those very tough decisions to make and that there's going to be really tight decisions to be made to call from 37 down to 23. And obviously we haven't even seen the backup list yet and it would be an interesting one to see whether there's any further Irish players listed on that. 
and how indeed they might respond to it. On a personal level, I've been at the end of those selection decisions where you travel away to a tournament. Mine was in the Women's Champions League and you're not selected. And it's absolutely devastating. Mm. But I don't think there's any player at that level who would not be expected to face that at some point. And you have to be prepared for that. So those kind of personal decisions, maybe that Peter O'Reilly is alluding to, I don't know that they're going to feature this much at professional level where every player is going to be prepared for that going forward. I think the wider question is, does the the group organizing the lines, one, see the sustainability because the commercial forces behind this are clearly large, not least for South Africa. And, and two, do they therefore ensure that there are representative coaches from each of the teams involved to try to avoid any undue criticism? Because Neil Francis is right. No matter who you pick, you're going to be criticized. But at least there's informed decisions on the table from all the representatives of the teams involved in the selection process. Yeah. I think it's it's an interesting one. On the side. I don't think that stacks up as regards to the Sexton case because who knows Johnny Sexton outside of his hiring coach and his Leinster coach better than Warren Gatland. He toured with him in 2013 and 2017. He spent over a decade trying to plot Sexton's downfall as the head coach of Wales. Is there any head coach in world rugby that knows Sexton's game and character and personality better than Warren Gatland? So Gregor Townsend knowing Finn Russell inside out, I'm not sure that would have been a factor in this discussion at all. I, oh, that is it not, had to be a huge factor. Uh, had to be I, a huge I, I, factor. So Bigger was always going to go. Farrell was always going to go. This was Sexton versus Russell. Are you telling me that the attack coach <laughs> is not having a huge say in what number 10s go? I would be astonished if Finn Russell is starting at 10 in the test series. Same. So Same. If that is the case, and we're agreeing on that, what is the point of him being there Finn Russell is the dirt tracker of this trio of fly halves. He is going to be playing on a Tuesday and a Wednesday, and he's not going to be playing on a Saturday against the world champions. If Sexton was going, he would have been scrapping with the other guy for the test job. There's mm. no way Finn Russell gets close to that. But to say that because Gregor Townsend knows Finn Russell inside out and maybe doesn't know Sexton is a misnomer, in my opinion, because the guy on the other side of the table is the head coach and knows Sexton better than almost any other coach in world rugby. Okay. It'll all come out, I'm sure, in the wash. We'll, there'll be an article in six months' time about that conversation that happened behind closed doors, maybe, and we'll find out. Um, something totally different. Page 13 of the Sunday Independent. The FAI must step in to resolve Toland issue. This is Tyler Toland, Republic of Ireland International. Katie, you picked out this one. David Kelly is right in here. He's saying the FA have to get in and sort out this issue because clearly between Vera Pau and the Toland, well, family at this stage, it's not just Tyler Toland herself. Her father, Morris, is very involved. Those two parties are not sorting it out between themselves at the moment. Yeah, I picked it out because obviously my interest is always to see what, what kind of coverage does, does women's sports get on, on Sunday. I mean, there's a, a lovely short piece on Katie McCabe's contribution to Arsenal. Um and she's likely to be in with a chance of making the WSL team of the year because she's joined top of the WSL assist table, which is really good news in the context of the development of, of women's soccer here at home. Um, and on page 13, we have a slightly different take, which is not good news, quite frankly. Um, and I'm sure listeners and viewers will know that this has been picked up probably in the last two weeks in particular. I think Sinead Kassan wrote yesterday as well um, in the Indo about this. And Dave, in particular, is arguing, I think, the case that there should be some kind of independent voice now. He finishes his piece by saying an independent voice with gravitas would seem appropriate 
to achieve a satisfactory process. Decisive leadership is required to end a sorry saga, which reflects poorly on women's sports in this country. So for those who don't know as much about women's soccer, Tyler Toland is an up and coming player, potentially for the Republic of Ireland, but certainly in her own right as a, as a footballer, was, if I'm right, the youngest player to be selected for the, the senior team and has recently transitioned from what we would call underage into senior football. In other words, under 18 and onwards, even though, as we know, there's an under 19 national team as well. But technically now she's over the age. She is an adult in her own right. She plays for Manchester City. She's currently on loan at Glasgow City, two top teams on the other side of the water as well. And as the correspondence of this has panned out over the last two weeks in particular, it seems that there's definitely a, a very deep sense of personal dissatisfaction going on on both parties. I don't want to get into that in particular because I'm sure there are others who might be better placed to do that. But it does strike me that as women's football is going to develop further, there will be more and more of these players who will be facing into, quote unquote, a big bad world of football as they transition into adults, not least the likes of Tyler, who's good enough to go to Manchester City and to be playing with Glasgow City, who who are really on the verge of making a breakthrough into the final stages of the Women's Champions League now and have been on that cusp for probably the last three to four years. And in fact, I worked with them many, many years ago now, about 10 years ago, and you could see that development path in terms of where they were going. And for any player, I think the parents are certainly important when you're transitioning through that underage structure. And undoubtedly, the communication with parents is critical as part of that. The FAI, the IFA and many others will have a child welfare or player liaison officer who's employed to do that. But when you become an adult in your own right, then the expectations shift. And it does seem to me that this has carried over from being on the underage and under 18 teams into her adult career as such. Now, I've noticed in some of the coverage today that the word teenager is used a lot. And on the face of it, Tyler's no longer a teenager because she's now an adult. Um, there's been other references, obviously, to some of the detail of what Vera Powell has claimed to be the communications that have occurred between her and the player's father and between the, the player herself as well. So this is why David Kelly in, in this piece in, on page 13 is calling for an independent voice. I mean, at the very least, it does appear the communication has certainly broken down. There also does seem to be some suggestion and it's writ large in most sports of the extent to which parents who want to ensure that their children have a, a career going forward or a, a, at the very least are batting on behalf of their interests as they are underage, that um, there's been some sense in which questions have been raised about the decisions of coaches and everybody will be familiar with that right through from underage in any sport going forward. The extent to which that's become very personal is not good news for the FAI. And I mean, I would certainly encourage them to try to reinstigate open communication channels there. Yeah, it's very messy. So as you rightly say, Katie, she made her debut for Ireland age 16 and 43 days, youngest in history. That was in 2017. And as a 16 year old, she played every single subsequent game under Colin Bell. So she has 13 caps to her name. On the strength of her performances for Ireland, Man City swoop in and sign her. Man City, obviously a huge club. So they signed her in August of 2019, two years after her debut. Now, the next month was Vera Pau's first game in charge. And she was involved in that camp November 2019. And whatever happened there just hasn't been involved since. And it has become very 
ugly publicly. Like Mary Hannigan had a piece a couple of weeks back where she detailed a text message from Tyler Toland to Vera Pau, which said, hi, Vera, Tyler here. I'm reaching out to you. I'd really like a fresh start and for us to put everything that happened behind us. I'm sorry for how everything turned out. It wasn't good for either of us. I really want to play for both you and Ireland. I feel like I have a lot to give. I'm really working hard on my game. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to play with you and get back in your team. Looking forward to hearing back from you. Thanks. Now, she received no reply. And then this was put to Vera Pau in a press conference uh, recently around the 2023 World Cup draw. And Vera Pau said that the agreement with Toland had been that she would have to phone her ahead of any possible return to the squad, that a text message would not suffice. Uh, Vera Pau said, maybe a bit of guts would help her, end quote. Uh, she also accused uh, Morris, the father, and it's a serious accusation of harassment and intimidation. And he described that in turn as ridiculous. So you can see how entrenched both sides are here. There's not much middle ground. He described that charge as ridiculous, saying they'd only spoken once back in January. He conceded it was, quote, a hard conversation, end quote. And then he went on to allege that uh, there were questions over Vera Pau's dealings with his daughter in those first two squads that uh, he was concerned about her physical and mental well-being. She lost a stone in weight in a short space of time. He says that Pau was persistently critical of Tyler throughout those two camps, particularly her physical condition, a criticism, he says, that puzzled her club who felt she was in peak condition. So, uh, Dave, this has gone beyond, I think, the two sides sorting this out, and it's gone beyond us being able to adjudicate what's true and what's not true here. So I think David Kelly has a point when he says FAI need to get involved. Yeah, he, he quotes a statement from the FAI this week where they said this will rightly remain a process that will not be in the public domain. I mean, that's bogus because that ship has long since sailed. This is very much in the public domain and it's not helping anybody. You mentioned the, some of the quotes there from Tyler Tolan's father. I mean, the language is confrontational. It's really unhelpful and it's not painting anybody in a great light. And at the end of the day, he's talked about his daughter's physical and mental well-being. You've got a 19-year-old footballer that's stuck in the middle here. And it's not healthy for any of the individuals involved, but least of all Tyler Toland herself. Um, now, Pau acknowledged that she had received that text message. You've mentioned that there, Joe. but And that the agreement with Toland was that she would have to phone her ahead of any possible return to the squad. And that a text just wasn't going to be good enough. But <clears throat> to follow that up by saying maybe a bit of guts would help her. I don't think that's good enough from a paid employee of the FAI. Mm. If that was the agreement that they had made between the pair, fair enough. But at the very least, send her a text back and saying, you know, Tyler, thanks for getting in touch. But we did agree that the only way to solve this was over the phone. Please call me. You know, we can go through everything that needs to be said then. Ignoring her and ignoring a message that seemed to me to be very mature in the manner it was put together. I'm sure Tyler told maybe it would help from somebody else thought a lot as she was putting that message together before she sent it to Vera Pau. I don't think ignoring her in that fashion is good enough. It's not a 28-year-old veteran we're dealing with here. I think it would have been very easy to set up a phone call of some description. Now, ultimately, and this is mentioned in today's papers, this could just be a case of an international manager not believing this player is good enough to play for her. And she gets paid to make the decisions. She gets paid to pick a squad that puts her in a position that best allows her and the squad to win games. She's entitled to pick whoever she wants, leave out whoever she wants and drop anyone she wants. But I yeah. don't think this has been handled well. And it would have been so much easier for Vera Pau to say, look, we need to talk about this over the phone. Ring me when you can. Manchester City have signed this player. She's obviously got talent. 
Now, Vera Powell, Katie, may well have very, 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 very good reasons for cutting her from the squad. But publicly to come out and say maybe a bit of guts would help her, as Dave says, I'm in full agreement with Dave. That lost me. I, I don't know what's happened here. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But that is not a way for the Irish manager to talk about one of her players. And I think it is, you know, adult or not, she is 19 years of age. I don't think that's the right way to go about your business. I think, I mean, and the reason why I raised the question about age, Joe, and, you know, the legal age going from under 18 to adulthood as such, mm. that transition isn't smooth. And it certainly won't be smooth the more competitive women's football becomes, the deeper the talent pool and so on. And that's why the likes of what were previously known as child welfare officers essentially become the, the player welfare officers because, you know, you have a different challenge, for instance, when you think about boys to men's football going across the water into academies and all those other things that come with transition. In their cases, it would have been living away from home as Tyler is now doing as well. Obviously, she's gone, you know, Manchester City onto, onto Glasgow. So there is a role undoubtedly for something like a player welfare officer on behalf of any national association, or indeed perhaps it's been delegated to somebody on the international uh, team or the, the group, the setup behind the team who work with those younger players to help them through that transition. And there does come a point, however, whereas the older you get, the responsibility is on your shoulders, but she's still at that difficult age. Hmm. I mean, more, more broadly than that, there's probably liaison questions. As I say, it's, it does seem to me that it would be useful to ensure that there is better communication. And I take Dave's point in terms of what he said there, even aside from whether or not somebody has sent you a message, whatever, a voicemail, putting all that aside, Anybody who seems to have expressed a desire to want to become an international player would at the very least have a right to feedback in terms of what he or she next needs to do mm. in order to be able to make that cut, whatever the cut is, if it's been explained clearly in relation to some developmental, technical, tactical issue. And those discussions might well have taken place. We don't know this. And that's why I think I'm just being careful in, in terms of trying to encourage there to be open communication, because at the very least, if Tyler does succeed, and I wish her the very best, she certainly is somebody who playing at that level would, on the face of it, make an important contribution to the next iteration of the senior women's team. Mm. And what about Vera Powell's role in this, though? I mean, is it is it would, would it not strike you as very odd that she didn't reply to the text message, but she did feel the need publicly to say that Tyler Tolan maybe needs a bit of guts? I mean, this is why I don't know what feedback's been given in terms of, you know, what, what, what kind of advice could be given to a player who hasn't been selected this time, who therefore is pushing to try and ensure that happens the next time. It seems to me, having read Mary Hannigan's piece that you described um, a couple of weeks ago, Joe, that Vera was on the spot a little bit. And, you know, any of us in those situations may not express ourselves as clearly as we might like. Um, whether or not the guts refers to the fact that there is an expectation on her behalf that there is this conversation and that that should happen either face to face or on the phone, that may well be the next step. And hopefully it does occur. Yeah, hopefully it gets sorted out. It seems very messy. Uh, that's page 13, Sunday Independent. The FAI must step in to resolve a Toland issue. David Kelly there. And just uh, a brief mention, I guess it's uh, semi-related Irish international football. Uh, Mark Sykes on, in the Sunday Times, Katie, I know this um, grabbed you. This is a transfer from north of Ireland to Republic. Yeah, page eight and a little bit over onto onto page nine. Um, Mark, former Oxford United player, and the, the subheading is takes a long-term view after choosing to replay, play for the, the Republic of Ireland. I think in the context of the way he's been interviewed here in the pieces by Paul Rowan, um, he 
charts the conversation that he had with the the new Northern Ireland senior manager now, Ian Barraclough, whom, as you know, probably took over from uh, Michael O'Neill. Mm-hmm. And Barraclough asked him why he hadn't uh, taken this decision to declare at senior level for the Republic of Ireland under Michael O'Neill's realm. And he said, um, I told him straight that it was never an option for me. I had nothing to hide. I told him that I only found out in the last 24 hours. So in this piece, Paul Rowan also describes a conversation that occurred with uh, a member of Stephen Kenny's backroom staff, uh, a phone call from Rory Higgins, it's claimed, who spoke to Mark Sykes. And Mark explained to Ian Barraclough that it's not about getting games and stuff. In my eyes, your international career is where your heart is at rather than your head. So he seems to suggest that had this opportunity been open to him previously, that he might have certainly considered it and his form of late for Oxford has helped them compete again for a playoff place a win against Burton and so on I think um, this is likely to probably draw attention again to the the unusual position that exists in terms of dual eligibility it's something that's rumbled on for the last 10 years or more I mean I remember in about 2009 2010 the IFA themselves and in this context it's the Irish Football Association not to be confused with the Irish Farmers Association, um, they, they claimed that this whole issue was a, a banana skin. And then one of the, the senior members of the board spoke about the importance of trying to understand better why players would declare for the Republic of Ireland. And a year later, we had the, the case about Daniel Kearns going to the Court of Arbitration for sport. I think if I recall at the time when, when Ian Barraclough took over, he wasn't, I think he did make some comments at the time, and you might correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, about this particular issue. And, and obviously it's it's a difficult one for the IFA as well, because in, in investing in players at a at an underage level and in the context of a talent system, to then, as it were, lose, quote unquote, uh, a player to a different system is frustrating if if nothing else. But this is a situation that's not unique to the IFA, that those born in Northern Ireland have a right to dual eligibility. It's accommodated in very different ways across a range of sports, right through from the Olympics and athletics through to football, rugby, we've just been speaking about as well. But it is likely to draw attention to this for other players also, because Sykes makes it clear, and I quote him again, in my eyes, your international career is where your heart is at rather than your head. So this wasn't a flag of convenience for Sykes in the way that we might describe it for footballers and athletes, track and field athletes, I'm thinking of who, you know, declaring for Bahrain and Qatar and many others at the IOC are troubling with. He says this is this is a, a decision for him. Yeah, Sykes has no regrets about changing allegiance is the headline there. So he's uh, very much Republic of Ireland now. Uh, Dave, I know you both really like Paul Kimmage's piece. Very different to anything else in the papers. Uh, Fabio Jakobsen, <coughs> the Tour of Algarve. He was uh, riding in the Tour of Algarve over the week. Uh, he finished 126th, I think, in the uh, day Sam Bennett won one of the stages. So uh, I don't think many of us were going down to the 126th place rider <laughs> there to dig out a story. But Paul Kimmich has, and it's an amazing story. Yeah, it is. If you have never heard of Fabio Jakobsen and you have absolutely no interest in cycling, this is the article for you because it means that you're coming to this piece with a completely clean slate. It's like a little short story that Paul Kimmich has written, written this morning because you can sense all is not right here and something uh, damaging is about to happen you can almost feel it creeping up in you as you're reading the piece so i would suggest anybody who doesn't know anything about uh, fabio yaxman have a read of this because it just brings you step by step through what has happened it uh, likens him to nicky lauda who returned to uh, the hot seat in a formula one car 
42 days after suffering catastrophic burns and that accident that we've all seen portrayed in the movies and in documentaries over the years. And he is back in the saddle. He is a sprinter. He would have been vying with Sam Bennett at the quick step team for that leading sprinting role. Um, they were both set off on different training regimes, different racing regimes in different parts of the world. And ultimately, the team were going to decide when and where the they would pitch either of these two riders as the lead sprinter in their team for the main tours. And then COVID hit. And then, unfortunately, this accident hit. And it's it's an awful, terrible, catastrophic accident that has really damaged him physically. The litany of injuries that he suffered when he was just nudged by the elbow of another rider as they were approaching the finishing line. He crashed into hoardings. He's lost half his teeth. He's lost a part of his jaw. He had his nose busted. He suffered contusions to his brain. And... He has somehow managed to get over all the physical issues that he suffered that day. And now, as Paul Kimmage writes, it's a mental issue. And I liken it to the, you know, the footballer that has suffered one of those compound fractures of the leg, for example. And, you know, the pins have been inserted and he's undergone the rehab and he's come back nine months later. And he just doesn't know whether mentally he's going to be able to commit to that 50-50 tackle ever again, mm. knowing what he's been through. And it's only until you go for that ball when it's between you and other player and that you come out of it and you feel the leg is in good shape that maybe you can begin to put it behind you. And he knows himself that this is an issue, Fabio Jakobsen, and he has been asked, you know, you could be a domestique for the rest of your career, but you were potentially one of the world's great sprinters. Will you be able to commit to that bunch sprint a kilometre out, half a kilometre out, 200 metres out from the finishing line? And he says, I won't know that for certain until the moment I'm in the middle of that sprint. It is to my advantage that I don't remember the crash itself. I don't dream about it. I'm not afraid to fall off my bike. I remind myself that really serious crashes like mine don't occur very often. But if you want my comeback to succeed, I will have to give it all. A sprinter who breaks too much will never win a race. It's just fascinating. Mm. And this guy is either going to be one of the, you know, the errand boys for a big team or he's going to get over this situation mentally and psychologically and put himself in a place where he can be the guy who burns the big money, puts the sponsors in the limelight front and center. You know, the Mark Cavendish is Sam Bennett of this world. At the last line of the piece is we wish him well. It'll be so interesting to see where he is in two years time. Yeah, this was July 2020. It was a tour of Poland, Katowice. And uh, the plunge where the accident happened, they top 80k per hour. You know, it's frightening speed and the description of the accident from the perspective of his fiance is what stays with you I think the most uh, Delore is her name and uh, she was in Rotterdam that afternoon he's a uh, Dutch and she says that the last 10k always makes me nervous when the jostling begins I always go and do something else I keep listening to the race but I need some kind of distraction it was the same that day I was doing something else until the moment my dad shouted from the kitchen that Fabio was in front and winning so I hurried back to watch I saw him sprinting swerving and before I knew it he was in the roadside barriers. It all happened so quickly. In the replay, I saw him crash into a man and into the finish barrier, his helmet flying from his head. I knew this was bad. And then the injuries are just horrific as she describes them. I only recognised a small piece of his face, his eyebrows and his lashes. There were sutures and bruises everywhere. His head was shaved. There was a large bruise on it where his brain had thumped against the side of his skull. There was a tube to drain the brain fluid. He was unable to open his mouth. Later, when I looked inside, there was nothing. Teeth gone, half of his palate gone, part of his jaw gone. I was looking at the inside of his nose. And here he is, Katie, nine months later, racing again. It's, 
the pace and the crafting of this piece is is really lovely, Joe, because, you know, at the very beginning of the piece, you get this, what seems as, as a bizarre opening to a piece about a team video and a Dutchman called Fabio who wasn't a natural fit. And here he is in this video and it's only a couple of lines into the piece and you're hearing about details of his facial features, sparkling eyes, per perfectly formed teeth and the most brilliant smile. And that's what draws you in. And Dave is absolutely right because the pace and the rhythm of this brings you towards the end where you literally are almost in the shoes of this cyclist who at the front is in ordinary circumstances prior to this very, very serious injury fighting to be the house sprinter for the Tour de France. But by the end of this particular race, Paul Kimmage talks about finishing 126th. He stopped short of the line, put his hands on his hips, and here he is at the end of the peloton, essentially, and he's watching a replay of his teammate winning again on a giant screen. And Paul Kimmage says the image was heartbreaking. Um, and that's what's so lovely about this piece, because you get a sense of something to come and it gradually unravels. It's a really nice insight as well into the, the challenges for professional cyclists mm. and for guys like this who are now clearly trying to win their way back into the favor for, for selection for, for the big events. Not unlike many elite sports people after coming back from injury, wondering, will, will I ever be good enough again? And quite literally, there being only one way to find out. It seems that he's also trying to, I think for himself, to try to recoup something from what was a very serious injury and trying to see, probably understandably, the opportunity that there is in not remembering the crash itself. But I, I think, and maybe this is what Kimmage is trying to get to, I find that heartbreaking as well, uh, because it does tell you the extent and the severity of this injury. And in a sense, the fact that he has no memory of it is what's likely to put him in those dangerous situations again. Hmm. I'd love to know if he's watched it back. Would you watch I it? I haven't seen it myself, Joe. Yeah. Would you watch it back, Dave, if that was you? Um, I would probably speak to a sports psychologist before I made that decision. If you feel that there's merit in watching it back and that it might assist you in getting over it mentally eventually, well, then yes. If you feel that watching it back is likely to end any chance you have of ever been able to commit to that bunch sprint, well, then I would find every way possible to burn that footage and never have a look at it mm. um so katie, yeah i don't know the answer to that katie are you taking out your phone and going onto youtube no i'm not i'm not i mean having having had a number of injuries myself and being involved in research and sports injuries joe I, I i find it very difficult to take solace from from looking over a video of a very serious sports injury what i try to take are the educational benefits of it moving forward but i certainly in my own teaching we have a session on pain and injury and i have to put a health warning to any of the images that I include, because um, it's it's very difficult viewing when you know the severity, not only of the injury itself, but of the longer term consequences that are likely co to go into the future for this guy as well. I mean, at this stage, Paul Kimmage describes him, he has a boxer's nose, a scarred face, and is still currently missing half his teeth, but the real damage is internal. And that's what Dave was alluding to here in, in terms of the, the psychological aspects. Mm. Cycling is not motor racing, there is one engine, one chassis, and no protection when you crash. Yeah, that's really, really good. Page 19 of the Sunday Independent, absolutely well worth uh, digging out in the paper or online. 
Katie, you picked out another piece for us. We've three more to get to. Uh, Ross Tucker in the Mail on Sunday. We have Joe Brawley in the Sunday Independent and then Karen Carney in the Sunday Times. Uh, Karen Carney, people will remember, I think, this story. This blew up uh, last year, give or take. She was a pundit and she was talking about Leeds United and she, from memory, without quoting her directly, made the comment that the pandemic interruption maybe helped Leeds win promotion. The perception and Leeds fans and Leeds, uh, the club, hated this perception was that um, they would run out of steam under Bielsa or had the previous season because he put such a demanding game plan on the team. And she suggested that the pandemic break might have helped them because it gave them a couple of weeks, months to recuperate and then brought them up to the Premier League. And she was wondering, would it strike again this season in the Premier League? Now, it clearly hasn't. Uh, It was an opinion. It was roundly shot down. But uh, Leeds United quote tweeted it and a flurry of abuse came her way and she's detailing, Katie, uh, how serious that abuse was and how serious a toll it took on her. Mm. And, and I mean, like what I said earlier about Johnny Sexton's willingness, I think, to indicate that he was experiencing balance issues for, for welfare reasons. I think the tone of this piece by Rebecca Myers on Karen Carney's situation is also coming from a similar position because Carney says, and I think very bravely, given the abuse that she's been exposed to, Um, She said that in a call with government officials and social media companies, which is interesting in and of itself that these calls are now happening. Mm. She said she had referenced the death of Caroline Flack, whom whom many listeners will know about, who committed suicide last year when she was a focus of media attention. And that kind of acknowledgement is only likely to draw further abuse, it must be said. Um, And Rebecca Myers in this piece goes on to say that typically the worst online abuse has been aimed at women who work in football, so she cites others that we know of, Alex Scott. Alex Scott, I I think in her response, has said that she's refused to quit Twitter because it would allow, as she sees it, the abusers to win, Mm. whereas Khan Carney deleted her Twitter account as a result of that because of the effect that it had on her. And Rebecca Myers goes on to quote a couple of others, now becoming very successful female uh, pundits on TV, especially Zainab Abbas in cricket, Tammy Beaumont, also in the the 100 cricket and Sonia McLaughlin is also quoted later on. And there may well be a thread of connection here, Joe, between this piece in terms of what Karen Carney is saying and the evidence of that abuse, but perhaps more widely, just a shifting in terms of the tone of communication within football in particular. There might be a thread, may very well be, back to the Tyler Toland case we were speaking about earlier, but if so, the FAI needs to deal with that. But this is more widely, I think, cause for reflection for all of us in the context of the ways in which Some of the social media platforms now becoming, I think, more open to questions and a need for not only self-regulation, but independent regulation and the extent to which some of those are very dangerous echo chambers for the kind of abuse that none of us want to see going forward, I think, whether it's to do with sexism, racism, homophobia and so on. Yeah. Dave, your thoughts on all this? I mean, I I hold out little hope of the social media companies being able to keep on top of abuse, unfortunately. Yeah, and until until something changes in that regard, we're just going to keep going around in this seemingly endless cycle. There was another incident involving the BBC rugby interviewer, uh, Sonia McLaughlin, who's one of the best at her job out there in yeah. the manner in which she approaches post-match interviews. And she got an awful lot of abuse after the England-Wales game last year or earlier in this year's Six Nations. And it was also needless. Yes, you can have a difference of opinion. You can absolutely rubbish Karen Carney's opinion that, you know, this lead side potentially could crumble towards the back end of the season as they had done previously under uh, Marcelo Bielsa. And that's absolutely fine because it's her opinion and you could decide that her opinion is completely inaccurate. And that's, I've no issue with that. 
But until you are in a position where you can no longer just dole out this sort of senseless abuse to these people, and whether it's female pundits, whether it's people of colour, whether it's members of the LGBT community, if you can set up an anonymous account and hide behind that and suffer absolutely no accountability for anything you say or do on social media, as long as you can do that, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or any other social media platform, this will continue. It just will not change. Now, I know we had the social media blackout in the last week um, or in and around the Premier League. I mean, you know, that's one step that you can take. And it's it does appear that we are finally starting to really consider the options here. But a lot of the responsibility is going to fall to legislation, to government and these companies themselves. And until that changes, this will not change. Mm. Next piece. Fairness put at risk when identity and biology clash. This is Professor Ross Tucker. This will be a piece and a discussion between now and the Olympics, which will be very contentious and will be very triggering for a lot of people and just difficult all round. And if any of us put our foot in our mouth in it over the next uh, couple of minutes, please forgive us because we're coming at it, I think, in um, uh, the right way and, and uh, wanting to learn, really. So what Ross Tucker's writing about here is the New Zealand weightlifter Laurel Hubbard. So it would seem, uh, for all intents and purposes, she will qualify for the Olympics. It's not official yet, but all all things going as they are, she will uh, be going to Tokyo. She's currently ranked fourth of the uh, 14 qualifiers. She's 43 years of age. Uh, She's a transgender uh, weightlifter. And so uh, she is competing under IOC guidelines, which were issued in November uh, 2015, updated in November 2015. Athletes who transition from male to female can compete in the women's category without requiring surgery to remove their testes, provided their total testosterone level in serum is kept below 10 nanomoles per litre for at least 12 months. So that is the uh, rule. And Laurel Hubbard is absolutely abiding by the rule. Uh, Professor Ross Tucker, Well, I don't want to put words in his mouth, so I'm only going to quote him. Uh, He is concluding. He says, ultimately, uh, this should be a principle confirmed by evidence uh, that informs decision and policy, along with the recognition that biology rather than identity matters for sport and that women are entitled to the fairness and safety afforded them by a category that excludes male bodied advantage. Uh, I'll give you some of what he's saying. Uh, He outlines the argument, um, or certainly his argument. He says, biological differences between males and females are huge with insurmountable performance implications. A male versus female gap of even 10%, as is found in running events, is so large that many thousands of men outperform the very best women. Many high school boys sprint faster, throw further and jump higher than women's Olympic champions. Strength and power differences are even larger than in running. At the same weight and height, men can lift 30% heavier weights and produce 30% more power. And he says this divergence happens most profoundly at uh, puberty. Goes on to outline various differences. The hearts and lungs increase in size, creating greater cardiovascular capacity, body fat significantly reduced, etc. He says it is the difference... um, ranging from 10 to 15 percent, depending on the attribute, is what he says. 10 10 to 50, 10 to 50, excuse me, that's a big difference. So he says the issue for sport, and this is where we are now, the issue for sport arises when trans women enter the women's category. The fundamental question is whether the biological differences between males and females can be removed or even reduced significantly if we agree fairness and safety matter. 
He says, uh, sports policies often require trans women to chemically reduce their testosterone levels below a certain level 12 months prior to being el- eligible to compete as a woman. The uh, premise, take away testosterone, uh, sorry, excuse me, the premise, take away testosterone, uh, the source of the advantage and fairness is ensured. Uh, this leads to the obvious question, is that true? What does the research show? What if there is no evidence? If there's none, should inclusion be allowed? And so Ross Tucker, to conclude me talking here, he says more than a dozen studies exist that have tracked trans women undergoing hormone suppression for at least 12 months. Bone mass and density are barely affected. Muscle mass is reduced by only a small amount and strength decreases only slightly. He says, in short, whatever biological differences and thus sporting advantages exist, initially remain largely intact. This fundamentally is why Hubbard's participation in women's weightlifting in Tokyo is so contentious. And then he goes on to uh, reach the conclusion which I read out to begin with. Uh, Hubbard uh, began transitioning as best I can see at 35 years of age, um, had been a weightlifter up until 2001, quit at 23 uh, due to the, in a different article, Say, quotes the pressure of living as a man when it became too much uh, transitioned and came out as a woman in her mid-30s and has been extremely private since and then she shocked the world in 2017 by winning two world championship silver medals and now um, the Olympics beckon I mean there's certainly a degree of discomfort here uh, when you're it's it's so personalised uh, Katie just to, to begin with you know Castor Semenya I felt that was a really horrible couple of years and it must have been dreadful for Castor Semenya and by all accounts Yep. Uh, Laurel Hubbard is incredibly shy, private person, has, has, you know, has not said much about the situation, but simply I am who I am. I'm not out here to change the world. I just want to be me and just do what I do. And so you have huge sympathy for where she's coming from. What about the sport and how it deals with this issue and, uh, you know, the argument outlined by Professor Ross Tucker today? Well, he's a physiologist, so it doesn't surprise me that he's going to conclude that biology rather than identity matters for sport that that doesn't surprise me yeah um i'm a sociologist so it won't surprise you that i would say i think that's potentially problematic when we talk about trumping certainly when it comes to identity matters now the link i suppose to the castor semenya case is that we've yet to hear the outcome that case is now with the court of human rights isn't it as the last port of call in that case in switzerland yeah and the debate has focused around the status of women's sports as a protected category. That's been the legal debate and therefore the basis on which you would protect women's sports. And the positions have have varied significantly because we're seeing more and more of a human rights input into this. So from no need for a protected category anymore to allow women's sports to flourish and to give them a so-called fair opportunity, given that men's sports still dominates just as it has in the past and therefore these categories that are used to define sport so the, the, the concept of a protected category is tied logically to the concept of fair play. And that's indeed what World Athletics did at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. They defended that position and that was upheld at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, and having separate women's events means that logically, therefore, you have to have a reason to exclude. And the exclusion is no longer as popular a stance as many have argued it would have been in the past particularly when you're getting this onus now on inclusion from a human rights perspective. And that's where identity does come into play. So sport policymakers, I suppose, are in a very difficult decision because no qualifying athlete should have to, quote unquote, dope down or indeed dope up 
to compete in the Olympic Games. But on the other hand, women athletes have argued that sex equality is a legitimate goal. And therefore, separating athletes by what are called biological sex traits is the only way to achieve this goal. Now, inevitably, as happens in sport, what you're seeing happening in sport is tracking changes in wider society because we're learning more and more about the various biological processes that are at play for some of the people that find themselves in this position. I think probably the community of women athletes in all their diversity, but I think more crucially at all levels of sport, Joe, because this has been driven at the moment by high performance and that's unbalanced as well. I think we need to think about this across the realm of all of those that take part at community level, at amateur sport, we would call it probably grassroots around the world, that they should have a significant voice here because historically the criteria for women's sports protected category have been predominantly determined by men. And now that's not to say that men's voices like the voice of Ross Tucker, or indeed the voices outside of the women's sports community can't be heard, but they shouldn't be the deciding factor. And that's why I think there's probably more to come in terms of us learning more about the interplay between biology and identity, and that will raise implications for how these protected categories are going to be defended going forward. There's probably one logical conclusion at high performance level that you're going to end up with some kind of sub-criterion for certification for inclusion around what's regarded as an acceptable threshold for testosterone for athletes who have transitioned. That's likely, I think, to come into play down the line. Mm. But it'd be interesting to see what's the conclusion for, for Castor Semania, first and foremost, because that's the most pressing one that, that has an implication for Tokyo as well. Yes, because I know last year World Rugby banned trans women from elite women's games due to injury risks they concluded that there was a 20 to 30 percent greater risk of injury risk factors when a female player is tackled by someone who's gone through male puberty i mean you see i'm not a scientist and most people have no sense of what a testosterone level in serum below 10 nanomoles per liter means for at least 12 months that is complete gobbledygook to all of us that you know just no sense of what that means or how that feels or how that equates to you know, uh, below 100 animals, uh, frankly. So uh, it, it's, hard, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to have a firm opinion. But what certainly is clear from, say, Ross Tucker's piece is he is making the argument that regardless of what the line is set at, and at the moment it's 10 animals, he is arguing that once puberty has happened, that the studies thus far are showing very little change, that almost uh, once puberty has happened, it's very hard to create a level playing field. That's how I interpret what he's saying. Yeah, and he's, he's also, and a lot of the physiological research would point to the longer term benefits, if you want to use that, of testosterone. In other words, that you're not going to lose the so-called advantage, however that's defined in the short to medium term, particularly for the sports that are regarded as strength or yes, power-based. Yeah. And that's why I think the discussions are going to go in different directions when we look at their application. I mean, currently World Athletics is focusing only on certain events involving Castor Semania, as we know, 800 primarily. They haven't enforced this particular testosterone threshold for other events yet. But I think that's why I, I, to keep a watching brief on this case mm. in Switzerland is going to be very interesting going forward. Mm. Dave, any thoughts on all this? <laughs> I mean, it's a minefield, isn't it? And it's a subject that even the most qualified health professionals and scientists are still grappling with because it's really only an issue that's probably come into the domain in the last decade. And unfortunately for Castor Semenya, there was always going to be somebody that was going to 
bear the brunt of being that first person and it's i'd say this has taken an incredible toll on her but somebody was probably going to have to be that person and as katie says we've yet to see how that's going to end up in terms of the ultimate court decision but i mean ross tucker talks about there was more than a dozen studies that exist that have tracked trans women undergoing the suppression treatment for 12 months and he says bone mass and density barely affected muscle mass reduced by only a small amount, strength only decreasing slightly. Now, there might be some of people on the other side of the argument that would say, well, here's four or five studies that say something to the contrary. So mm. we don't really know the ins and outs of that. Um, the point that Katie makes is a really good one about elite level sport, high performance sport. I think forgotten about in some of this discussion is the transgender athlete that is just looking to play a game of rugby at their local rugby club or looking to play a bit of tennis or looking to play whatever sport in which there may be some sort of an issue or a discussion around this. Where does that person go? How does that person fit in? All they want to do is just live a normal life and get involved in local sport like anybody living next door to them. Mm. They may not be able to if these if this goes down a certain route. So I do think there is probably going to have to be a, a, you know, a point of attack coming from two different angles in this. They may well have to sort out the high performance aspect of it first, then look at how what this means for athletes of all levels, of all ages, throughout the world and across all sports. This has got so much further to run. I mean, one thing I would say, and this has been pitched a couple of times over the years, and it's utterly nonsensical, that the prospect of a, a someone who's been born a man considering you know changing their identity so they can win an olympic medal yeah and i've that sickens my stomach to see that there would be anybody with the goal to put a theory like that forward and i hope that the days of somebody pitching an idea like that are gone because it is utterly unhelpful to this conversation and eventually we will get some sort of clarification on it but as katie says i think we're a good bit away from that Hmm. Uh, something totally different to finish with then. Joe Brawley, page five of the Sunday Independent. Katie? Well, not totally different because um, we're, we're still on the theme of science. So according to Joe Brawley here, the tyranny of spoof science robs us of the joy of playing. Um, it's on page five of the Independent. For those, I think, that follow any of Joe Brawley's writings, there's some stuff here that you will have seen before in terms of uh, being uh, less than happy, let's just put it that way, um, with a well-known sports guru that Joe Brawley describes. But, but in it, what I'm interested in, that not unlike, I think, many of Joe's public musings, there's a lot thrown into the bathwater without a lot of clarity. Um, so he takes issue with some of what's called this spoof science or pseudoscience that he's described in, in other articles. And um, he says, this hollow, dull, and frankly ludicrous faux philosophy has swamped our games and is part of a process of boredomification that is taking hold in society in general. Spoof science has replaced passion and spontaneity, invention and original thought, so that if someone doesn't use this language, he or she is finding it harder to be taken seriously. So he goes on in this piece to talk about a recent webinar given by a coach or sports scientist, presumably at his own local club, um, and he talks about some of the, the language that was used in that webinar. The presentation was delivered fluently. But I suppose to, to summarize it generally, he was asking what, what, what was the basis of it? And he spoke to a friend of his, presumably at the club, who was very impressed, but Joe wasn't. Um, and he says, thing is, if you aren't fluent in this bullshit nowadays and able to make a PowerPoint presentation and so on and so forth, you'll find it difficult to be taken seriously. So he he takes issue with the formulate tyranny that means 
training regimes are enforced from junior to senior, Leitrim to Down, which are the same. And I think even though he, he appears to take issue with this spoof science, actually he's he's probably plugging into a lot of the discussions that have taken place in the philosophy and the sociology of sport over the years about this high performance ethic that we've come to discuss um, even in the, in the last piece as well. Um, because in the drive for high performance success, it is those kind of success criteria that become the means by which clubs, teams at whatever level are actually judged. Now, that said, it depends on what he exactly means by spoof science, because in here, I think he, he seems to take issue with everybody under this umbrella term of psychology, if I can call it that. And, you know, in amongst the other papers we just read today, you can see reference to the role of accredited sports and exercise psychologists in terms of their preparation of teams and indeed the ways in which they're now working increasingly at club level and into senior level as well. So I, I think as a scientist, I would have to say I wouldn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here either in terms of whatever this spoof science is that Joe is taking issue with. And it would be good, I think, if you were to engage with the actual science itself so that we could get a sense of where he's coming from on it. But you guys will probably have read and interviewed Joe a little bit more than I will have. And you might you might say this is more of the same or is there perhaps something different in it? Well, I think so. Some of the language he's talking about in the presentation, just for people who haven't read the piece thing, you know, the phrases I suspect we're all pretty familiar with growth mindset, building emotional resilience, visualization, intrinsic and extrinsic motivators, enshrining the positive thought processes, actualizing the decision making process. And uh, he begins by um, uh, quoting well-known, doesn't name him or her, well-known sports uh, guru who who had said at one point, optimism is a muscle. So he rang the science department at Trinity College of Medicine to ask if there is an optimism muscle in the body. Um, now, he says, I kid you not. So I'm presuming he did, but I don't know if he's joking or not. He's asking if there is an optimism muscle and um, they say there's not. Are you having me on? No, there is no such muscle. You're certain. Definitely not. Now, I think when somebody says optimism is a muscle, they don't mean that literally, clearly. They're talking about how you can practice that habit. You can get in the habit of being optimistic. But he's he's taken that quite literally and gone to Trinity, which is, I guess, kind of funny. I mean, I sort of get where he's coming from. There is a lot of spoofing in this world. There is It is buzzword heavy. I think there are a lot of pale imitators out there. I do get, like, I get that. And, uh, you know, I, I guess, Dave... You know, Things like actualizing the decision-making process. I, I, It wouldn't be the first time he's rolled his eyes at this and thought, well, you just spare me the bullshit and you're just trying to sound a lot more <laughs> a lot more intelligent than you are and you're dressing simple um, maxims up as uh, seriously brilliant science and they're not. They're just a bit of common sense in the main. It wouldn't be the first or the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth time, Joe. <laughs> I love Joe Brawley's writing sometimes and... I know very early in a piece on a Sunday afternoon whether I'm going to finish the piece that Joe writes because there are days where he sucks me right in and I will ensure that I tell somebody else, make sure you read Brilliant Today, Sunday Independent. Today isn't one of those days. Um, and I guess you'll find something like that with every author that, and every writer in the paper. Someday you like what they do and some days you don't. I feel like I've read this piece several times already from Joe. And... You know, he's right. And you're right. There are some bluffers and spoofers out there. And there's some people probably making a living off this. What is a relatively new aspect of sports psychology and sports preparation at a high performance level that probably are 
fooling some people and bluffing away to a pretty decent living in some way. But you could say that about all walks of life. You could say it about the club manager or maybe in some cases the county manager that is getting paid and is a bluffer as well and is really over not qualified to be in the position that they're in. The other side of it as well, and I don't have a huge amount of knowledge of this aspect of sports psychology and team preparation, but look at some of the guys and uh, female athletes as well that swear by the influence that people like Enda McNulty, Carolyn Curd, Kieran Shannon, and other sports psychologists out there and performance coaches have had on their career. Listen to the way that Brian O'Driscoll talks about Enda McNulty, who Joe is not a fan of. Um, do you just completely dismiss the testimony of a Brian O'Driscoll in that situation? It's very difficult to. Someone as intelligent, as successful, a career as, as brilliant as O'Driscoll has had, not one, I would imagine, that suffers fools lightly. Not a gullible person. Paul O'Connell, another guy. Some of the great sports people that this country has produced over the last 15 years would attest to the influence of these people. I'm not just going to bin that and agree with Joe in this situation. And, and this is why, Joe, I said, you know, we can't throw the baby out of the bathwater here in terms of science. I mean, in, in the piece we've just discussed, Ross Tucker, rightly so as a scientist, talks about the importance of evidence leading to policy decisions and you know you can have these intricate details about evidence and that's what academics do in terms of whether x number of studies is appropriate for a representative sample or indeed the composition of that sample but here joe dismisses everything to do with science without actually giving us a sense of the ways in which he understands the accredited sports and exercise psychology work that does go in here that davis just alluded to that does underpin high performance sport in particular i mean the other thing is some of the language is very interesting. He, for me, at least, I think he goes potentially further than any has done in other pieces. And he makes a very bizarre reference to male physiology for anybody that wants to have a read of it. Um, I don't know whether that's a direct reference back to one of these well-known sports gurus that he's taking issue with. It seems a little bit more personalized than some of the, the other contributions. But if, as you say, Joe, he's, he's trying to, I guess encourage a wider debate about where are we going in the context of sport more generally and the drive for high performance success well then let's have that debate but let's not have it by setting up a straw man where anything to do with science that's associated in his mind with high performance success has to be poo-pooed because therefore we're undermining the very thing that we're trying to encourage going forward, which is to have less of the hurler on the ditch and more of an informed discussion. That would be my my response to it. OK, we are out of time. Thanks so much to you both. Dr. Katie Liston, a senior lecturer at Ulster University, Dave McIntyre, commentator with Virgin Media. Thanks very much, folks. Appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Joe. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation. 